But if you're new here today, uh, put up with me and you'll get the, the regular guys uh, in the coming weeks. But you've made a great decision to be here. Um, this is a good church. Uh, safe is a, is a value. Uh, safe and safety is a value to a relationship, to authority, to home, and to church. Uh, and I commend this church to you. Uh, the, the leadership, the pastor team, um, Pastor Eric and his wife, Laura, uh, they're good people. Um, they're safe people. Um, you might not know them well if you're new here, uh, but you can trust them. And, um, and I encourage you to continue to press in here. Um, it's a joy to be with you. So yeah, hopefully you found your uh, place there in Mark chapter 2. Um, and I've been asked, particularly by Pastor Justin, who I've known also for eight years, um, to, to speak to the topic of within the, the uh, series of how loving Jesus requires us to love one another, uh, to specifically speak to what it means to bear with one another. To bear with one another. Romans chapter 15, 1 and 2 says this, For we who are strong have an obligation, a duty, a task, to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to simply please ourselves. Therefore let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But with the arrival of technologies and personal handheld devices, it seems like we've lost the ability to bear with one another in many ways. Uh, the norm these days within our culture is that of cancel culture. The norm is to label any person that's difficult or any task that is, is stubborn of, of, of nature to label that as toxic and to move on away from it. And I believe certain things can be toxic, but most things that we hear about, most people that we hear about that are given the label toxic aren't. It's just difficult. It's just difficult. So in light of this, how do we bear with one another? How do we, uh, another way I like to think of it when I think of bear with one another, how do we put up with each other? How do we put up with each other? How do we bear with one another? How do we remain and push through things when it gets tough and it does get difficult and when we do become stubborn? This morning, I hope to offer you some encouragement. Is that me? Am I doing something wrong? Here. Do what with it? directionally too far away. I don't know. Check, check. Are we good? Go with it. Yeah. I'm from Kentucky. I can get loud. You know? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, 
So uh, in Mark chapter 2, what happens is Jesus comes onto the scene. I'm trying to give you a landing spot here for Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, some context, okay, so that you know where this comes from and it's not taken in isolation. Uh, so, so Jesus comes on to the scene in Mark 1. He calls his disciples. He teaches in the synagogue. He begins to heal the sick. He frees those who have been demonically oppressed, those who are being controlled by the powers of darkness. And as a result, you know what takes place. His fame spreads, right? A person like that that does those sorts of things, the reputation begins to exceed them. And his reputation goes all over the Middle East. And then Jesus goes synagogue to synagogue with his disciples. He, he teaches in the synagogues. He preaches the gospel of the new kingdom in the synagogues. He heals and he sends demons away. And then we have our text in chapter 2 and verse 1. You can follow along in your text. And when Jesus had returned to Capernaum after touring, I don't know, up to 50 or 55 synagogues, uh, if he went to all of them, after he had returned to Capernaum, um, after some days, the news got around and it was reported that he was at home, at home, most likely the home of Simon and Andrew. So word gets around and when, when, when Jesus is near, people begin to come from everywhere. Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, like you couldn't fit another person. You couldn't even fit a person in at the doorway. And Jesus was preaching the word. The new kingdom has come. The Messiah is here. I'm he. I'm God. Come to me. And they came. And they came, particularly this one guy came bringing or carrying with him a paralytic carried by four men, which tells us this person was likely a grown adult. They carried this lame paralytic man carried by four men. And when they could not get near to Jesus, and I imagine they tried a number of different ways, but when they couldn't get near to Jesus because of the size of the crowd, they unroofed the, the home. They removed the roof, which is a very ridiculous act of desperation, but they removed the roofing above Jesus. And when they had made an opening, and that word literally means to dig, when they had dug through the roof enough, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these guys have a friend, a very hopeless friend, and he's suffering from paralysis. And the four men, they had hope, and that hope was if we could just get our buddy close to Jesus. They were trying their very best to get close to Jesus. But the crowd was in their way. But they didn't let that stop them. Just a real quick thought here. You and I, we all have different reasons to come up with uh, why we should or could stop caring for certain people. We can all come up with reasons why we should stop praying for certain individuals. Well, we should stop pulling for them in life. People who are so hopelessly disconnected from God, who want nothing to do with the Christian church, who are hateful and hostile towards Jesus. We've all got reasons why we should abandon such people. Remove the roof if you have to. Become very desperate. Get creative. It's ridiculous to remove the roof. Do the ridiculous in order to get your friends to Jesus. This is part of what it means to bear, with, bear, uh, to bear with one another. It's to be determined not to lose hope and to do ridiculous things all to get your friends and family closer to Jesus. Now, during this time, most buildings in ancient Palestine, they had these flat roofs. Then they were made with a mixture of, of clay that then dries on brush and then clay that dries on brush reinforced underneath by wooden beams. 
And the crowd, nor the door, nor the roof for that matter, is going to stop these four men from getting their friend to Jesus. They were determined. They were desperate. Now, wouldn't you agree with me that you would have to have a fairly significant sized hole in a roof in order to lower a grown man on a cot or a bed down through it, right, without dropping him? Because that would make things worse probably, right? And so you're probably talking like he's, he's stretched out horizontal, lowering them down through this significant sized hole. But these men knew something. They knew something about Jesus. At some point down deep, they knew this, this is worth it, y'all. This is worth it. Let's just go up on the roof and rip open a hole. They knew that it was worth the work, that it was worth the effort. They knew it was worth not walking away when Jesus was close. They knew they shouldn't give up so easily. They also knew they didn't have any power in themselves to help their friend, or they would have done that without approaching Jesus. But they knew that they could do something, and that was to get their friend to Jesus. Part of bearing with one another is remembering that you don't have the power to change anybody. And that's hard to learn. Most of us think we do have the power to change people. And that's why we become so frustrated when people don't change. We're mad at ourselves. We're mad at them. But you, part of bearing with one another is knowing you don't have the power to change a single person. Not even yourself, let alone somebody else. You don't have the power to change yourself. But God does. And he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives through and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so they open the roof and they lower the man down into the presence of Jesus Christ. And verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, not the gentleman's faith on the mat, but when Jesus saw the one bearing with the man, when Jesus saw their faith, their trust and confidence and hope and belief, when Jesus saw that within themselves, he said to the paralytic, my dear friend, my son, close to the phrase, my beloved, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus sees just how much these men believe that he can help their friend, he tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And right then, right there, he's forgiven. And now you might be thinking, well, that's good, but uh, he needs to walk, right? But what Jesus does here is extremely brilliant. It's wonderful. He forgives the man's sins. Jesus takes care of the man's true need. He takes care of the man's deepest need. It is the forgiveness of his sins. But as Jesus does this, there's these religious cats that are around, these religious leaders, and they study theology, and they understand certain doctrines. And they show up here in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes, these experts in the law, were sitting there. And I love they were sitting there. They were sitting because they were learning. They were students to Jesus. And they were submitting to his authority as they sat and listened, just like everybody else, which they did not like to be like everybody else. They wanted to be superior. They're sitting in the presence of Jesus. Just an observation. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts. The word is to dialogue within out of frustration or disagreement. And so it's when you're, like, caught up in an argument, um, like if you're talking to your parents or if you're talking to your teenage child, and you're, like, you're, you're reasoning back and forth, and you're, you're dialoguing, and you're trying to come up with, like, how can I convince them? Like, I disagree. How can I do this the right way? How can I... How can I win this argument? We've all been there, right? Probably this morning in regards to how fast you're driving to church or whether or not you're going to stop and get coffee. You're dialoguing within of how can I convince this person? 
So here's Jesus. He's teaching. And then you've got these religious leaders listening. And as we're going to see, these leaders, they're from all over the area. And they've gathered here in this home, not a synagogue, in a home to hear Jesus teach. And the Pharisees, they're uptight religious cats, right? And they place so much um, they place so much weight on strict compliance to the law, minuscule details and regulations, not just to the law, but regulations that they themselves have made up over time so as to keep people from breaking the law. And so they have guardrails against keeping God's law. Keeping God's law is good. The guardrails that they threw flags on you for as if you broke God's law, they were holding you up to those guardrails and they had guardrails to those guardrails to those guardrails to those guardrails. And if you touch a single guardrail, let alone breaking God's law, they just lost it and they would condemn you. And so they were these, they were, they were so uptight, very, very self-righteous. They spent their lives reviewing and teaching most of these man-made laws. They were professional uh, lawyers and teachers who belonged to the Pharisaic party. Now, why do you think they're there? Do they just happen to show up in a group at somebody's home? Like Andrew's house? Why are they there? Why do the leaders show up? I see this as an intentional meetup to investigate Jesus. They're curious. And so they're leaning in, investigating, and Jesus does not disappoint. Jesus is God, and he proves his full power of being God and having the authority over all things. Forgiveness of sins and, forgive, and, and healing the human body. He shows his power in both. Now, here's what they're questioning. Here's what they're dialoguing. Look along in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? This is what they're thinking. This is not verbal. They're thinking within. He's blaspheming. Why is he talking like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, that's great theology. It's very, very accurate. Only God can forgive sins. It's very good theology. Now, a prophet or priest, as you can see in the Old Testament, could forgive sins in the name of God along with sacrifices. But the question was whether Jesus had this prophetic authority to do so or was he a false prophet claiming to act on behalf of God when he actually wasn't? But notice that Jesus claims an even higher authority in verse 10 when he tells them that he is the Son of Man, which is leaning, by the way, back into Daniel 7, where he's proclaiming to be the one who is over the final judgment on mankind. He's making himself out to be God when he embraces the title Son of Man. And immediately, as they begin to think this, immediately Jesus perceives in his spirit. Why? Because he's brilliant. Jesus is the most brilliant person ever. The nicest guy, the kindest guy, the most powerful guy, the smartest guy in the room always, of all time, and just brilliant. He knows what they're thinking. He knows that inner dialogue that they're toying over. He knows, look in verse 8, as they have questioned or dialogued within themselves, he says back to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? He knows the hearts of man because he created the hearts of men. He knows their thoughts. He knows their ponderings. He's aware. Why are you thinking this? Why are you feeling this within your heart, he asks. And then he says, which is easier? Which is less trouble? Is it easier to say to the, this paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, stand up, take your bed and your mattress, and walk away? Another word for that uh, walk is to live. 
Which is easier? Well, both will be difficult. Neither would be easy. But Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know that I am God, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is our greatest need. So that you might know that I have the authority as God in the flesh to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he stood up, he rose, verse 12, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed, astonished. Imagine being one of those Pharisee types that feels this way. You feel vulnerable, like you're giddy over what's happening. You're like, I can't feel this. Like, I, I can't be excited about this. Like, I'm supposed to be upset about this. But I, I'm freaking out. I'm astonished. They were glorifying God, praising him, saying, we never saw anything like this. The miracle of this healing validates the power of Jesus to forgive sins, and it proves that he is God. Now, imagine what it would be like to experience this, to witness this. This man who you have probably seen on the side of the road begging for years. You know him as that needy guy. He can't walk. If he's ever anywhere, it's because somebody carried him because he's completely incapable. You know this guy, and yet you can't believe it, but you're, walk, you're watching this man walk out of the room. He came in through the roof. He's walking out the door, but he's walking out a forgiven man. You cannot deny it. You've seen this complete transformation of someone that you have seen for decades, maybe, on the side of the road, not being able to walk. Friend, this is exactly what the gospel does as the Spirit of God changes us. He gives us life. He makes us alive to Him. He transplants our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that beat for the glory of God above everything else. This power of God at work within us makes us reborn, or as John would say, born again. It makes all things new within us. It gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, a new way of living, a new way of loving, a new way of responding to one another, a new way of putting up with each other, a new way of bearing with one another. This house is packed with people and a paralytic with several friends. They can't get their buddy to Jesus, and they do the I guess a logical thing, but it's still entirely ridiculous. They pull part of someone else's roof off and lower their friend to the presence of Jesus. And on account of this man's faithful friends, Jesus heals the paralytic. He tells him he's forgiven and to pick up his bed and go home. Friend, this is how Jesus handles any person that approaches him. He says in John 6, 37, whoever, even the people you disagree with most, even you, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never send away. I will never dismiss. So what does this story tell us about you? What does it tell us about me? What does it tell us about us? How does this help us bear with one another? Another way I like to answer questions like these or to ask another question, who are we in the story? Well, Many of us can find ourselves often in the audience of the skeptical, unbelieving, maybe even proud, self-righteous religious. You may be near the Messiah. You may, may feel near God here at Mission Church, but you're not sure if what you're hearing is true. You're, kind of, you're on the outside. You're on the outskirts. You're, you're leaning in, 
Sometimes you're skeptical. Uh, sometimes there's, you know, we have this self-righteous uh, pride within ourselves, a certain swagger as we're consistent for so long in living the Christian life. You're a good person. Perhaps you're good at being good. Perhaps you're good at following rules and even helping enforce them. And you do, if you admit it to yourself down deep, you feel a sense of pride when others can't obey as consistently as you can. And you would never say it because it would be bad, but down deep you feel like everything would be better if people were more like me. You have grace and you've got Jesus and you've got the manifold love of God systematized. You've got it almost down to a science. Friend, could you perhaps have what Paul warned young Timothy of in 2 Timothy 3 and 5, of having an appearance of godliness but actually denying the power, where you're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth? My dear friend, I encourage you to continue to press in here and lean in to gather and to listen. And my hope, and perhaps God would surprise you with what you're going to learn about Jesus and what you might even learn about yourself. I encourage you, if this is you, to pray for humility, to pray for self-awareness, to pray for something deeper, pray for soul awareness, pray for a knowledge of the truth and to be able to have a full obedience to that knowledge. And I would love for you to leave Mission Church one day on a particular Sunday, and because of what God does in your heart, you no longer have a category for what you've experienced that day in and through Christ Jesus, and you would do what these men, men did, and you would leave in utter amazement and awe, feeling like a little kid again, looking at superhero Jesus and saying, man, I've never experienced anything like that before. That's my hope for you. Many of us are also the unforgiven man. The unforgiven man is the paralyzed guy. He just happens to be paralyzed. The main issue is he's, he's unforgiven. Let's not focus on the physical need only here, but let's focus on the spiritual need. After all, that's what Jesus is after, and that's what he's most concerned with, and the same is true today. Friends, sin has left you in a place where you can't help yourself. You're paralyzed of sorts. You can't help but sin. You're really good at sin. You're really creative in your sin. You can't help get away from your sin. You can't escape its damning consequences. You can't heal yourself. You can never be good enough to free yourself of your brokenness, to give you hope in your hopelessness, and to forgive your sins. And you've got to experience forgiveness. You, you, you need Jesus. You just must experience Jesus. Everyone in this place has to experience Jesus. You just got to. You, you must. And the Bible teaches us that your rebellion before God and, and your sins, they have eternal consequences. The Bible teaches that because of our sin and our rebellion, that we are destined, we're born in this way of going to hell. But the gospel is this, that Jesus came into the world to save you from yourself and your sin. Right? Therefore, you must be saved. Jesus came and suffered, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, just like these men brought their friend to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Friend, this is your greatest need. You must be brought to God. Your heart, your soul, your life, your mind, your will, everything brought to God. But have you experienced this? Have you, not your grandma, not your preacher, not your spouse, not your children. Have you, have you experienced this? How do you experience being brought to God? Well, first, you must, like this man and his friends, you've got to be aware of your need. 
They came to Jesus because their friend had a need. Do you see your need? Are you dead needing life? Are you paralyzed needing to walk? Or are you just pretty good and need to be made better? There's a big difference. Do you see your need? Not one single person has ever become a Christian without first knowing their need. The self-satisfied person, the person who feels like everything's all right, that person doesn't need anything. He's fine. He's got no problem. There's no need because there's no failure. Why come to Jesus? What's the point? There's no purpose in doing so because I've got no problem, at least that I'm aware of. Therefore, my prayer for you is that you see your need, that you see your true need, and that you come to Jesus and have him help you and meet your need, heal your your illness and your need to satisfy your longings and fix and repair your main problem. My hope for you is that you would no longer pretend you don't need the Savior's help, but that you would humble yourself, grovel at his feet. The only way to come to Christ is on your hands and knees, groveling and crawling. There's no strutting, there's no swagger, there's no pretense, there's no self-righteousness. It is a small, low door to get into the kingdom of God. You don't jump there, you crawl there on your belly. That's the only way to come to him. The low and humble, that's the way. Which leads us to our second point, not only seeing your need, but two... You must not only know your own need, but you must go to Jesus and Jesus alone to meet your need. We go to a number of places. We feel this need, and we go all over the place trying to meet this need. It can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. You've got a sin problem. And that's the problem behind all your other problems. You must be forgiven of your sins. The heart of all your problems is a problem with your heart. Therefore, you need forgiveness of your sins. You need to believe Jesus today and trust him in his work for you, and you will be forgiven. Right then, right there, just like the man in the story. You see, our greatest problem is sin, our rebellion before God, doing our own thing in our own way. Sin is not being or doing what God requires. It's our lack of faith in Jesus and his goodness. But when we call out to Jesus, seeking him for help and deliverance, he responds always. He can be trusted to handle what our needs are. Our sins can be forgiven. He took care of our sins through his substitutionary death, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks to this, that Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We might become good enough. We might be forgiven and restored back into relationship with God. This is what we need most. Now, you may be mainly aware of your physical needs. You may be only aware of your paralyzed body, if you will, to borrow the analogy from Scripture and our story this morning. And forgiveness of sin seems so far away from, like, what's really happening in your life. You've got a list of problems. Forgiveness of sins isn't at the top of that list. It's my marriage. It's my child. It's my job. It's my boss. It's my my money. It's my investments. It's my doji coin. It's tanking, right? You know... (laughs) I'm not alone. Okay, good. Um, You may be convinced that your main problem is something very different than your sins being forgiven. But if Jesus merely healed this man physically, only to allow him to walk and jump for a few years before he died, what good does that do in eternity? How helpful is that? What's the point if I become from a paralyzed person to an Olympic sprinter only to run straight into hell when I die? What then? I need something more than simply the ability to walk. I need to be forgiven. I need life, and I need life more abundant. 
You see, since Jesus forgave the man's sins, whether he walked or not for a few years, he could take heart and be encouraged. His sins were forgiven. Friend, you might only be interested in your legs, so to speak, but God is interested in your heart. And he can change your legs too, if he so desires. But if you come to Jesus to walk, you'll still die. But if you come to Jesus to live, you'll outlive death. And, you'll, and you might leave walking, leaping, and praising God. That actually might still happen. But regardless of your legs, you, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. We want so many other things. We have so many other needs. But we'll never get them until we get this first. You seek first Jesus Christ, the one the only Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God. They bring this man to Jesus for his legs, and Jesus forgives his sins. Who's talking about sins? Did the men bring up sins? They're talking about his spine. They're talking about his legs. That's his problem. Can you not see this? But Jesus knows of this greater problem. This is an unforgiven sinner. He's guilty before God. This has to be changed. Friend, have you come to the place in your life where the thing that you would like to have changed more than anything in the world, have you come to the place where you begin to view that as a gift? Because it's actually that that's turned your heart toward Jesus, that got you to face Jesus Christ, where you were lowered before him. Without this need of not being able to walk, he would never have been brought to the presence of Jesus. And who knows if he would have been forgiven of his sins. He went there for his legs, but he was restored and renewed in ways he never knew. Why? Because of his inability to walk. Something that he wanted changed. Your paralyzed state gets you to the point where you're in the presence of Jesus. Your need, the thing that you want changed most about your situation. What if... You went to Jesus and began to see that he's actually using that to help your greater need. And you experience a change and a deep transformation that you never even considered. God is this good. He's this powerful. We think we know what we need. We think we know the problem. We know what needs to be done. We know what needs to happen, right? My friend, you need more than your legs fixed. Your heart must be healed and your life must be forgiven. You must first be reconciled to God. And this is the doing of Jesus Christ. I need to walk. I need to be healed. Jesus says, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven. I have this problem. Oh, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Are you aware of your true problem? Are you aware that Jesus is the satisfaction and the answer to that problem? You see, all of our troubles are due mainly to our sin. And Jesus has come to deal with that sin and then trouble. So we've got to hear, my son, your sin is forgiven. Our trouble exists because our sins have separated us from God. Our relationship with God is more than just complicated. It's non-existent. And we're all born this way in our sin. This, this is the source of our trouble. This is the source of our despair. This is why our life situation is the way that it is. All things are wrong and broken because of sin. And the greatest need isn't the symptom that got us to Jesus. My legs, I can't walk. 
Our greatest need is that we might be made right with God, reconciled with God, and this only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the treasure you're looking for. This is the satisfaction and fulfillment and the longing you're looking for. This is life. Here's your happiness, my friend. Your sins are forgiven. That's what you're looking for. Your discontentment is a symptom. Your discontentment is a symptom. And it comes from being disconnected from God. That's the disease. You're disconnected from God. And the symptom of that disease is your discontent. Jesus is the cure to the disease to take care of the symptom. And Jesus restores you back into friendship with God. That is what you need. And when you have this, you can be crippled and paralyzed all your days and still be the happiest man in town. Because Jesus is your friend. Because the Holy Spirit is your comforter and guide. And you've got peace with God. And heaven is your home after you live, I don't know, 90, 95, 85 years. Well, finally, many of us are the friends who help others experience the change of heart we have as they begin to see Jesus. And this is where bear with one another really comes to play in this text. You see, these friends were desperate. They were determined. They would not be put off. They would not be denied. They would not be pushed back. They, they were not half-hearted. They were insistent and they were urgent. They could have come back the next day, but they were determined, we're staying till we see this Jesus guy. Do you see and believe that your friends have a desperate need to be healed by Jesus? Do you believe it's dire? Or do you just believe it would be cool if they became Christians and started coming to your church? Or are you, do you see their desperate need to be healed and changed by Jesus? Are you bearing with them knowing their deepest and truest need is something that can only be addressed by God? Do you see and understand the root issue of your friend's problems? If you don't, if you don't see their true need of being reconciled to God, you'll unintentionally do great harm in trying to fix their sinful fruits and their ungodly acts while never seeing the root issue resolved. This is not what it means to bear with one another, not in the way that Scripture would have us to. When we do this, when we're more concerned with their outward fruits without addressing the root issue of needing to be forgiven by God through Christ, at best, you'll lead them to become moralistic, therapeutic deists, good Christian-going folks, church-going folks. At worst, you might even lead them into hell by believing that so long as they stay away from big sins, the ones that you point out for them, that they're going to be okay. Neither of these options is okay for the healthy Christian. The Christian must be aware of their friends and family's true need. More than seeing a particular, like, less respectable sin stopped, we need to see that our friends and our children meet Jesus Christ. And then we can trust Jesus and his spirit to change them. We merely point and point and point and point our friends to Jesus. And then we trust that Jesus can change them. This is part of what it means to bear with one another is we point to Jesus. It's when we don't do this and we point to other things where we get in trouble. And I see this more and more today. You probably do too. It's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot easier and even popular and catchier, if you will, these days to point out people's sins. Their big sins in particular. Sins that are different than our sins. It's easier to, to throw flags on people like sin referees when they sin differently than we do. But when we have the same sin in common, we usually just don't, don't say anything about it. We hold back for people who sin differently than us. 
And it's easy these days to point out those sins. And what this does is it produces guilt and shame and fear within the sinner who's on the mat as we point to their sin. But this also produces an angst and a frustration and a bitterness and an anger and a judgment in those who are pointing to people's sins while holding the mat. These men, they didn't point their friend to their friend's legs, saying, here's your problem. Why are you this way? They pointed to Jesus. Remember, it's not for fear of judgment that leads us to repentance. It's not shame and guilt that brings us to repentance. It's not the pointing out of my sexual dysfunction or my gender confusion that's going to lead me to repentance. It might run me off, but it won't run me to Jesus. Remember, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. So what we must be doing is pointing us, our hearts, and others to see Jesus, to see his kindness, to be drawn to him through his goodness, not his frustration with us. And the same is true for your friends, sinners. They're great sinners, just like you, just like me. And their true need is only taken care of when they see Jesus. And as you bear with one another, don't get caught up in the symptoms. Don't get caught up in the symptoms. Get caught up in the disease and the cure. Get caught up in Jesus and pointing to Jesus. Jesus is always interested in the main problem behind all other problems. Our society, our economics, our politics, our culture, we're consumed with symptoms. But Jesus is concerned with the disease and the cure. All of our friends' lives are going to make so much more sense when they see Jesus. But much confusion comes when they merely see their sins being pointed out. It may feel noble to point out people's sins. You may even find a few Bible verses here and there to justify your philosophy of shaming others and ridiculing others for sinning and for sinning differently than you sin. You can find a verse out of context for almost anything, but our goal must be to find verses that point our friends to the kindness and the goodness and the completed work of Jesus Christ. And when they see this, when they see Jesus, he'll handle their, he'll handle their fruit sins in his timing as he seems fit. And please know that he's better at addressing their heart and their sin than we are. Amen. He's much better. He does it with a lot less collateral damage. And as we, bring, as, as we try to bring change to stop people from sinning, it hardens their heart. But when they see Jesus as the one who shed his own blood to forgive their sins, their, their hearts melt like butter in the sun as the Spirit just changes them. And as you bear with one another, don't get frustrated with your friend's sins. Get them to Jesus. Pray that they see Jesus. And be drawn to prayers you bear with one another, not mere performance improvement or behavior modification. If they stop sinning outwardly to appease you and get you off their back, you might leave feeling better, but they stay feeling confused, hurt, and shamed more than ever before. Don't be satisfied with that thin level of change, that behavior modification for you or your friends. Bearing with one another involves seeing your life as that of a rope, a simple rope that gets your friends to see Jesus, that gets them nearer to Jesus, and you leave them there. Your life isn't to change theirs per se. Your life exists to get others to the one who can change anything. Your life is not to change people. Jesus changes people, and he changes everything. Each day, may your life be, may your whole goal in life, the purpose behind why you exist, I got to get my friends to see Jesus. 
When you see Jesus, you'll be made aware of your neediness. You'll be made aware of your sinfulness. And you'll be made aware that he can forgive such sin. We don't need to elaborate more and more on how sad and sinful culture is or how we are. We need to tell others just how much we can be made happy and forgiven because of Jesus. May your life's goal be to open and tear open many roofs and lower others into Jesus' presence and leave them there. That's the Christian life. It's a roof remover and it's a rope. That's who you are, Christian. That's it. As a way of keeping this big picture mentality of our great need and seeing Jesus as the means to this great need being resolved, it's for us to never leave the presence of Jesus ourselves. The way to protect our hearts as we bear with one another is to remain ourselves close to the cross, abiding with Jesus Christ more and more every day. Christian, we've got to do this. We must remain before Jesus ourselves. We've got to see Jesus ourselves. We've got to hear from Jesus ourselves. We've got to follow Jesus closely ourselves. Seasoned Christian, don't outgrow, outthink, or outhealth your need for lying before Jesus. We can easily drift to being the proud religious who don't need to lie before Jesus, but we sit and just listen. Friend, stay on the mat. Stay low before Jesus. Stay that needy person. Never outgrow your need to be in the presence of Jesus. And we can stay low before Jesus by seeking the way of humility and pursuing God in scriptures every single day, by praying and seeking God's wisdom and direction, and by repenting early and often. This is the way. Friends, this is what it's like to lay before Jesus on a mat. Never forget that you've been paralyzed and Jesus has taken care of your need and you sit there in his presence continually. Christian, has it been a while since you've experienced the joy and the fun and the freedom of repentance? The joy of lying before Jesus and not some other idol or self-righteousness? If so, I I ask you to to step into this fun and full and life-giving repentance where you turn to Jesus to discover what you thought could be found somewhere else. That's your freedom. That's the fun of the Christian life that you've been missing out on is you've been chasing so many other things. Leave those things. Run to Jesus today. That's the fun of the Christian life. But in closing, bearing with one another, Christian, your life is a rope. It's just a rope. It's just a rope, but it's a significant rope. And we can't change our friends. We can't change our families. We can't change anyone, but Jesus can. The answer is not to try to change others. The answer is to live in such a way that other people see Jesus through our words and actions. We're to use our words and our actions to help people get before Jesus We are that rope. And bearing with one another is learning that your life exists to glorify God by being a rope to get people to see Jesus. Are you desperate to see others changed by Jesus? Are you desperate enough to remove a roof? Do you have faith in God that he can change others, that he can change your family members, that he can change your friends, that he can change your enemies? Do you have faith that God can change you? Who is it that you're trusting God to save? If you were these men, who would be on that map that you would be hoping to get to Jesus? Do you have somebody? Are you taking them to Jesus? Or are you telling them to try harder? Or have you lost faith and hope in God that he can change this person? And so you pretty much just leave them alone on the side of the road and you don't don't worry about trying to get them into the presence of Jesus. Are you trying to get them to Jesus or are you just trying to get them to start acting better? There's a big difference. Knowing more about ourselves and believing more in ourselves is not going to save us. But knowing more about Jesus and believing him more, it certainly will. Friend, Jesus extends grace. 
to needy and broken people. The real Jesus loves to forgive. He came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save deplorable, wicked sinners. Just like you. Just like me. Friend, are you a Christian? Not do you do Christian things. Are you a Christian? Have you been reborn? Have you been born again? Is that something that you have honestly experienced? Not are you religious? I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking about your consistency in Christianity. I'm asking if you have been born again. Have you been regenerated from within where all things become new? You've been regenerated by God where you've been saved. Have you? Friend, Jesus is what you need and he's what you're looking for. And nothing else will satisfy like Jesus. Have you ever been face to face with Jesus? That's the question. Like what's your eternal destiny? That's the question. And I hope that you hear loud and clear today that when all else has failed, there's hope in Jesus. These guys tried everything. The doctors helped. The medicine was tried. Theories were trusted in. All failed. And they heard about Jesus and they said to themselves, let's try him. When all else has failed, he was as paralyzed as ever. Let's try Jesus, they said. And the gospel says there's hope for the hopeless and there's help for the helpless. If the worst person in all the world is in this very room today, there's hope for that person. That's the power of the gospel. When we hear the gospel and look at Jesus, when we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God, there's hope and help for anybody. There's no limit to Jesus. There's no limit with Jesus Christ. There's a limit to psychology. There's a limit to therapy. There's a limit to medicine. There's no such limits on Jesus Christ. Ask the guy who was paralyzed, who's now walking, who's now forgiven. Your marriage might look like this man on the mat, hopeless, tried everything. Friend, with Jesus, there is hope and there is help. Your life may feel as hopeless as this paralytic lying on a mat, but with Jesus, there's hope and with Jesus, there's help. Your child and your friend may look as lost as a ball in high weeds, but with Jesus, there's hope and there's help. When all else has failed, Jesus is the one who succeeds. No one has ever sinned beyond the point where Jesus can't save them. Not a single one. The troubled family member and your friend, they're not the exception. And neither are you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And you might be here today and your presence here at this church service is a last chance effort to get help. You're thinking nobody cares. You're thinking no one can help. You're thinking it's hopeless. And you drug your helpless self in here today. I'm glad you did. Could you be hearing today, my son, your sins are forgiven. My daughter, your sins are forgiven. I want you to hear Jesus telling you that today. It doesn't matter if Jesus is your last resort. He's good to save you and he's good to hold you fast. But have you heard Jesus say to you, my child, your sins are forgiven. Have you this hope? Have you heard these words from Jesus? He is not a waste of your thoughts. He's not a waste of your concerns. He's not a waste of your time. And I personally ask as a friend of your pastors that you think on these things and you think deeply on these things because thinking on these things is how one becomes a Christian and dwelling deeply on these things is how the Christian is made happy. Let's pray together.